All right, guys, welcome. Thanks for joining in a little bit early. Uh, as I've been doing, just wanted to give you a quick little bonus chat uh, as everybody's getting logged in and settled in for the lesson tonight. Uh, you know that our Bible Institute is, is meant for, uh, we're targeting two crowds. We are aiming to assist the average church member just to increase his or her knowledge of the Word of God, help them get better established, and the world needs more solid, faithful, um, involved church members. But there's also the, the people in our Bible Institute, we're training for the full-time ministry. So what I have to say, it targets, I would like to say, it speaks more to that second crowd, but I believe that the average church member is still going to be able to relate to what I'm about to tell you. But I remember back when I was in Bible school, um, you know, the hours that we had to put in uh, were, qu were quite a few, according to my schedule, right? I had to work all day and then four hours of school every night. And uh, with a young family, I was freshly married. And Megan, our first child, was born in our first year of school. Caleb was born in our third year of school. So it was tough balancing everything. And sometimes the thought occurred to me, you know, I, I, I'm putting in the hours. I'm making the grades. I got good grades in Bible school. But something deep down said, it's not a matter of how good the grades are. It's not a matter of how many times Dr. Ruckman or some other teacher in the school or some other deacon in the church sees me participating in church events, whatever they might be. There was something deep down that knew, I, if, I'm gonna, if I'm going to actually be used of God, then in my private time, I still have to put in that effort. And that is, I think, where, as they say, the rubber meets the road. Because it's one thing to pray along with the group, study along with the group, witness and preach along with the group. But then when you get all alone, sometimes I think the devil whisper in your ear and say, nobody sees it. God's not even taking note of it. This isn't going to make a difference. Guys, let me tell you, it's those, it's those private, personal moments when the real you comes out. And... You putting in that extra effort, that extra time. I believe when Paul wrote to Timothy, that first, first epistle to him, he says, the Lord counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The Lord didn't count his grades. The Lord didn't count how many times he helped set up the church or how many times he showed up for Saturday witnessing or anything like that. But when the Lord needed Paul, Paul was available. When it came to doing right, the Lord could count on Paul to do what was right in that moment. Right? Not to say Paul was perfect. We know that he wasn't. Far from it. But the Lord could count on him. And I want to encourage some of you guys. Maybe you think that the extra time you're putting into Bible Institute and into the personal work and just every aspect of your Christian life that goes seemingly unnoticed. Please let me just remind you that it is not unnoticed. God is watching that. And he is not forgetful, right? He, he, he's not going to forget your labor of love. All right, that being said, uh, you can open up to Matthew and chapter 27. I see we do have a handful of people already, already signed in, ready to go. Let me drop you guys a message just to make sure I am up and running as well on my side. I'm going to switch over to this version and put the outline back up as to use the King James English as I want to do. Uh, just to remind you guys of the of the outline. Christoph, good evening, man. Huyenot, it's good to have you out. Uh, you know, it is encouraging. You guys you use that chat section, um, not just for my benefit, but also to say hello to each other, ask questions, make comments. You know, even in class. You can see other people nodding. You can maybe hear them interject a comment here and there. That, that stuff's encouraging, so make use of that section. All right, the outline for uh, this chapter, Jesus before Pilate, which we have covered in part, but tonight we're going to deal with the bulk of that. Judas before the priest, that we dealt with entirely. And Jesus before the people. And I have no promises that we're going to make it to the end of this chapter. Tonight we are embarking on... It, it must be a slow chapter. 
I don't think it would be right to just zip through this. We're dealing with the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are so many ways that we should approach this passage. Uh, and when I say ways of approach, I'm talking about we could deal with just the historical facts. And that's fine. It's good to know the historical part of it. There's the practical part of it. That is, Jesus is suffering, and that should mean something to us. Um, the fact that he's doing it on our behalf. But then also there's a personal aspect. We are supposed to crucify the flesh. And what we're reading about is Jesus and his flesh being crucified. What led up to it? What happened while it was crucified? What happened afterwards? All of that we can apply personally. There are just so many things that we can look at this prophetically and how prophecies were fulfilled. So, so many things to look at in this. But before we uh, get into verse 11, which is where we're going to start tonight, let's pray together and then we'll move on. Father, please help us as we embark on this uh, incredible portion of Scripture. We do not take lightly what you sent your Son to do on our behalf. Please let it sink deep into our hearts. Father, we will never be able to do this story the justice that it deserves, but help us tonight, Lord, to approach it uh, with the honor that is due unto the Lamb. Father, we thank you for all you do in our lives. Thank you especially for all the truth we're about to read now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 11. It says, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Which, if you compare this with the other gospels, you actually find what is intended with those words. I think it's in Mark's gospel, it's written where he answers, I am. So by saying thou sayest, that's just an old way of agreeing with the statement that has been made. You said it. You're, you're right. What you've said is, is correct. Verse 12, And when he was accused of the chief priest and elders, he answered nothing. Now remember that Matthew, he is more focused on getting all the details there, not so much worried about the chronology of who said what and in, in, in what order. So all the facts that Matthew is, is giving us, they're perfectly fine. But if you want to get the chronology of when did the chief priest say what, then put Matthew's gospel next to John's gospel and, well, and all the gospels. Just set them side by side and you can work out a perfect chronology with that. But the chief priests and elders, they did bring Jesus to Pilate and started to level all these accusations against him, mainly political ones, saying that this guy says he's the king of, of Israel. He's trying to overthrow the government. He forbids to pay tax to Caesar, which wasn't true. And they were laying these charges against him. So again, if you want the fuller account, get especially the Gospel of John adds a lot, I think, to, to, the, to this story. Uh, you'll even find there a great conversation that Pilate had with Jesus. We might even take a look at it in a bit. But uh, Jesus, you can see at the end of verse 12, he answers nothing. Now why? The same reason he answered nothing when they were in Caiaphas' house. The Jews are not laying any legitimate accusations against him. Their witnesses don't agree. Their stories don't line up. There's nothing to straighten out. So verse 13, then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? Well, obviously Jesus could hear what they were trying to prove. They were trying to say he's guilty of insurrection and uh, overthrowing the nation and so forth. Verse 14, and he answered him to never a word. So when it came to that part of the conversation, Jesus didn't answer Pilate. He didn't answer the chief priests and the elders. There was, like I said, nothing to answer insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now bear in mind, Pilate is an experienced governor at this point, an experienced judge. He has had several uh, um, guilty people standing in front of him. He's had some uh, accused people, right? That might have been innocent. But he knows how people usually react under these circumstances. To see somebody calm, cool, collected, and standing there waiting for a legitimate accusation before he answers. Uh, this, this caught Pilate's attention. And verse number 15. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. Now you can go back into um, ancient Jewish writings and find that 
This was a, a custom in this time. This wasn't a Jewish custom, right? You're not going to find this in the law, but it was a more of a Roman custom that at the Passover, Pilate would release a prisoner uh, to the people. And this, it seems as if it was done just to try to stay in good favor, right? To keep a good relationship with the Jew, Jewish nation. Um, so now, again, you, when you read in the other gospels, the people were demanding that Pilate goes through with this, this custom. Uh, he was wont to release him to the people a prisoner whom they would, in verse 16, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. All right, let me give you a quick note or two on Barabbas, as you can see on the screen here. The name Barabbas means son of the father. Now, when you look at the Hebrew, you could probably see that for yourself, right? Bar, B-A-R, that prefix, that in Hebrew means son of. So Simon bar Jonah, he's the Simon son of Jonah. So bar is son of, and then Abbas or Abba, that's the Hebrew word for father. So you might remember this from the New Testament where Paul would write Abba, father. So you, you, you could work that out for yourself, I think. But Barabbas, son of the father. Now, it might be ironic, right? Well, it is ironic that the two men that are on let's say, on the option block here. Either one can be released. You have the son of the father and the son of the father. <laughs> but you couldn't, they're worlds apart as far as their character. Uh, verse 17, oh, forgive me, let me tell you a little bit more about Barabbas. Uh, it, in, in Mark and in Luke, you find out that he is a murderer and an insurrectionist. Uh, I think it's in Mark's gospel, you read insurrection in Luke. It talks about him being uh, guilty of sedition, which is the same thing. He's trying to overthrow the government. And then in John 18, verse 40, forgive me if I didn't give the verses for those of you just listening, Mark 15, 7, Luke 23, 19. Uh, it explains him being a murderer and an insurrectionist. And then in John 18, 40, he's a robber. Uh, in one of the other Gospels, it talks about how, oh, I'm sorry, we're reading it here. Matthew, in Matthew uh, 27, 16, he's a notable prisoner. So Barabbas was quite infamous in his day. People knew who he was. Um, this was a bad guy. Verse 17, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Uh, verse 18, let me just move that up for you. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Now when it says they had delivered him, Pilate is presenting these two uh, options to the multitude. The they in verse 18 are the chief priest and the elders. You can see that back in verse 1. They're the ones that brought Jesus to Pilate. So Pilate is actually looking for a way to get Jesus out of this predicament. At least at this point, he, he is. Um, he, he knows that there's nothing that Jesus did wrong. None of these accusations will stick. None of them will hold up in a court of law, which in this case is Pilate, right? He is the court of law. So he figures this is an easy way out. I'll make this choice so abundantly easy. We have this one guy who's a prophet who preaches righteousness, who helps, who's been helping hundreds, if not well, thousands of people, feeding people, surely the people will take him. Right? This seems like such an easy choice. Um, obviously, we're going to see in a moment, it didn't work out. But verse 19, for when he was set down, forgive me, just catching my place here. Yeah, verse 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So again, Matthew doesn't give us much as, as far as the chronology. I'm not sure at what point this message was delivered to Pilate, maybe right in the middle of this entire ordeal. However, the message comes from his wife. Now, the you get this from uh, the Ethiopic tradition that the wife's name was Abrok. Abrokla, A-B-R-O-K-L-A. Let me see if I can put that into the chat section for you guys. A-B-R-O. God help me, my eyes aren't as good as they used to be, so I think that's what my note says. <laughs> Abrokla, Abrokla. 
regardless of what her name really was, it doesn't change the story at all, but have thou nothing to do with that just man. Now, how did she know that Jesus was a just man? There's no indication that she ever met him. There's no indication that she was aware that all of this was going on. She woke up, right, from sleep. This is happening at around 5, 6 in the morning. She's just woken up. And now she sends message. She had a dream the night before about this innocent man and how it's going to mess up Pilate's life if he condemns this innocent man. Have nothing to do. I've suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now, this tells me something, uh, and I, I think it's noteworthy. Dreams are not the most stable way for God to communicate truth and reveal things to people. However, even though it is not the most stable way, right? The scriptures, uh, validated prophets, you know, prophets that God has, has worked through, whether it be uh, through fulfilling prophecy or doing some miracle, th that is a more stable way of communicating truth. Even God acknowledges this in Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, it's spelled out like this. Jeremiah 23, verse 18 specifically. Is it 18 or 28? Let me... Now that I say that, some of you guys might look that up. Let me, let me just double check that. I'm forgive me. That's Jeremiah 23, verse 28. Verse 28. So, while we don't want to lean too heavily on dreams when it comes to learning about God, we can't disqualify it as a legitimate method for God to communicate to people, especially when you think about Pilate's wife. It's not as if she would believe the Bible. It's not as if she has any background or former knowledge with the scriptures. So it's not as if she's going to present a, a scriptural argument to Pilate that's going to mean anything. What would mean something? Man, I went to sleep just fine, never heard of this guy or heard very little of him. And now this, this dream really got a hold of me. And now she's sending message to Pilate. So this God is, is reaching out, trying to tell people, warn people about how to handle his son through a dream. When you get into the book of Acts, you don't see where God uses a lot of dreams, but he does use a dream here and there. And I don't doubt that even now, God would still communicate to people through a dream. Now, please, I, I can't stress this enough. We don't want to let all of our knowledge of God rest on a dream, right? We don't want to determine the will of God for our lives based on just a dream. But we can't just ignore it either. I have read numerous testimonies, especially among Muslims. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why this is, but especially with Muslims, you can show them all the proof you want from the Quran, from the Bible, from history. But until God speaks to them personally in a dream and tells them, you need to search this other path, uh, very often they don't break until that happens. So I, let's not be too quick to dismiss it. Even though some people might abuse it, put too much emphasis on it, it is still something that God can use. All right, now back to our context. In verse 20, it says, But the chief priest and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So what was seemingly a very easy decision has now become convoluted, complicated, this, this just doesn't make sense. Why ask for this horrible guy instead of Jesus? Um, <laughs> this is still going on to this day, right? That the people who are in leadership, whether that's politics or religion, manipulate the crowd. That is, they tell the crowd only what they want the crowd to think. So I, we don't know exactly what the chief priest and the elders said on this occasion, but when you piece together from all the Gospels things that these religious and political leaders of, of the Jews were saying about Jesus, you can kind of get an idea that they were convincing the people that if, if Jesus was not executed, the Romans would end up, end up destroying the nation. Thinking then that we are doing a good thing by getting rid of this Jesus guy, that he is a pestilent fellow, as they would eventually say of Paul. But social manipulation, right, it's, it still happens today. I think it happens more today because of the Internet, because of uh, social media. As a matter of fact, it's flat out been proven that people do that now. They, 
these social media outlets, when they were first put together, things like YouTube and um, uh, Twitter, Facebook, things like that, they, the, the makers and founders thereof, they had decent intentions. They just wanted to put people in touch or make a way to send a quick message. But quickly, the depravity of man came out and people begin to abuse that. And now they can, they can create a, a, a government overthrow. They can swerve a, a, an election one way or the other. It's, it's incredible how they can manipulate the multitude. And that's what's going on here, the multitude got manipulated. Let me run you guys through a quick handful of verses here. I want to show you something about the multitude. I'm taking you back to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 8. Now this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, it says here, and a, and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. Notice it says a great multitude. Now I don't know, right? It I would highly doubt that it is the exact same person-for-person person crowd that is denying Jesus and rejecting Jesus in Matthew 27. I'm just showing you that the multitude there in Jerusalem, at one point they were for Jesus. They're putting down branches, accepting him. Hosanna to the son of David, right? Um, just a few verses later, verse 11 the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, of Galilee. They acknowledged him as a, as a prophet. Uh, come down a little bit farther. Sorry. Ooh, let me do it this way. It might be better for you. Yeah, verse 46 there at the bottom. But when they sought to lay hands on him, that's the Pharisees, as you can see in the verse before in the chief priest. When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So he's in Jerusalem, and these leaders won't touch him because the multitude like him uh, or likes him. Let's get chapter 22 and verse 33 now. So Jesus is answering the question of the Sadducees here. And it says, when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. They were blown away, very impressed with, with Jesus. Uh, and then... One more time here, you can see it in chapter 23 and verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, and he gives them this, this warning. And he speaks against the Pharisees and scribes and explains how they're hypocrites and talks about their mistakes and how they're in danger of the damnation of hell, right? The multitude hears this. And now just a few days later, and they are crying out, that Jesus should be put to death. It's incredible how fickle the multitude is. Right, so chapter 27, and we'll keep going here, verse number 21. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will you that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. So they start chanting this out. You know from the other Gospels, they said, away with him, crucify him. The fact that they're all able to say this in unison, kind of, it, it, it gives a nod. It tips the hat as to what they have been told. Right? They've been fed this information. They've been persuaded to say these things about him by, by these religious leaders. Verse 23, the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? Now watch the answer from the multitude. But... They cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. That doesn't answer the question. What evil has he done? Now, as you go about life and try to win people to Christ, right? just every opportunity that God gives you, you're eventually going to come across people that object to religion, object to Christianity, they object to God, they object to the Bible. And when you press them on the question, why? Why do you not like the Bible? What's wrong with Jesus? What's wrong with God? You'll find that often they struggle to answer that question. They have just heard snippets of things here and there, but they really haven't sat down and thought it through for themselves, such as the case with the multitude. They don't know what evil he's done. They were just caught up in the moment, told what to say. They went with it. Um, 
The governor, however, Pilate, you, as you read through the Gospels, you see that Pilate was never convinced that Jesus was a guilty man. Three times Peter said, or uh, Peter, Pilate says before the people, I find no fault in this man. So he's, you can see by the way Pilate's reacting that he wants to set Jesus free, he wants to get him out of this, but the, the people are not going to let that happen. All right, verse number 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made. So now there's a riot starting. And, uh, you know, we're no stranger to, strangers to, to riots in these days, right? Various movements get all worked up. People get worked up for all these social justice issues. And a tumult, right? A big ruckus is made. And you ask the people, what are you so upset about? Most of them don't even know. They're just swept up in it. Now, Pilate, he realizes, I've got to do something to calm the people down. I, if I try to stand up for Jesus and against the people, I'm going to lose control of the situ- situation quickly. So Pilate, knowing that he, he's beat. And with this, what's so strange about this is Pilate was knowing, known for being a very corrupt, wicked man. When you go back in the history books, you can read Philo the Jew. They call him Philo the Jew. Uh, he lived during this time. And Pilate was known for putting innocent people to death. And, and often, that was not a big deal for him. So for Pilate to do what he's about to do, this really says something that Jesus caught this man's attention in a big way. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. So this is your problem. This isn't my problem. Now, Technically, it is Pilate's problem, right? He's the governor. He has power to release Jesus, but he's afraid of the people. There's a lot of folks in this world. They know what they need to do, but they know if I do it, then I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm going to lose my honor before men, and I can't have that. So let me just like Pilate's doing, I'll try, I'll try to compromise and, and say, well, look, it's not my fault. Let me just stay out of this. No, no, man, you're in it. You have to decide. As Jesus said, you, you're either for me or against me, right? Pilate's a good example of that. So he washes his hands and says, I'm innocent. I've heard preachers use this to say, you see, water can't wash away sin. Now they use it in the sense to, you know, of baptism, that water can't wash away sin. That's obviously not the reason Matthew wrote this verse. However, that's an interesting point of view when you look at this, uh, this verse. But I do want to bring your attention to the fact uh, that Pilate, this seems to be a, a Roman gesture that he's making, a, a custom. Some will, and I'm about to show you just now, there's a, a passage in the Old Testament where the Jews would take water and, and wash their hands and say that they were innocent. I don't think Pilate is trying to do anything Jewish here. He's just trying to show them, listen, this guy's blood is not on my hands. Verse 25, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Boy, they shouldn't have said that. Wow, 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 wow. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 23? Let me uh, remind you quickly. This is worth taking a look at, I think. Um, Jesus talked to them about that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And he's talking about righteous blood. Righteous blood. So they said, let, let his blood be on us. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. So verse 26, Then released he Barabbas unto them, And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now the scourging, again, when you put the other gospels next to it, you can see that that there's a little bit of a time lapse between the scourging and the crucifixion. Uh, After he was scourged, Pilate brings Jesus out before the people and presents him again and says, Behold the man, I find no fault in him. So you can see that it looks like Pilate was... He had Jesus whipped in an attempt to, to please the multitude, to say, listen, I, here, I whipped him for you. Aren't, isn't that enough that you've, you've seen this punishment I gave him? 
And he, the bloody mess that Jesus was, that wasn't enough for the people. They still wanted him to be done away with and destroyed. Now, let me say one more thing about this, uh, about verse 25. His blood be on us and on our children. So the Jews are guilty as a nation now. Um, they are guilty of, of innocent blood. Let me give you the passage now from the Old Testament. Well, I'm going to try to. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, and for the sake of time, I don't think we can read this entire thing, but let's just get a little bit of context. In verse 1, If one be found slain in the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. So all the, all the leaders need to, need to gather and figure out who killed this guy. Right? There's, there's a dead body. There's, somebody's a murderer, but we don't know who it is. So they measure, and then they have to get this heifer. And there's a ritualistic slaying of the heifer that takes place. And Let me just put this up. This is your attendance coat for the night. Uh, let me bring you down to Deuteronomy 21 and verse 7. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Verse 8. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Verse 9, So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Now the reason I give you that passage, some people actually, well, they see a connection with what the Jews said in Matthew 27 and what was prescribed in the law. Now, to be honest, I don't think that Deuteronomy 21 and Matthew 27 are the exact same situation. However, the connection, the at least the, can we call it a theory? The idea is put out there that one day Israel will converge and come together and they will slay the heifer and then they will go through what's, what's pointed out here in Deuteronomy 21. And they will say, we, we, we are not guilty of this. Now, you see the difference, and, and therefore God would, would forgive them. That's the way that it's taught. And that Some people say that this has to happen before the rapture even, that Israel has to acknowledge that Jesus was slain, but that that particular generation of Israel was, is not for what happened. They, they say, we are innocent of that, uh, of that blood. Again, I don't think it works out perfectly. I think that there are some differences there. I'm pointing it out to you, so in case you ever come across it, you, you're aware that some people do make that connection. But I don't think Israel's going to have to do this to trigger the rapture by any means. All right, let me bring you back to Matthew 27 and verse 27. Um, you know what? Before we get into that, when you read... In each gospel account about Jesus being scourged, right? you never get a lot of details in any gospel about that. Um, this is where we, we, could, we could spend quite a while just talking about the brutality of a scourging. Many prisoners, when they were scourged, would, would die. It was so brutal. The whip that the soldiers used was a special whip called a cat of nine tails. Each whip, you'd have a handle with nine leather straps. Each strap was about a meter long. Most of the time it was leather. Sometimes it was a rope, you know, twine of some sort. And then you'd have pieces of bone or metal or other objects uh, in knotted into those straps. And when the soldiers would hit the body, it was like a claw going into the to the person's flesh and then when they would rip the the whip out it would just rip chunks of, of flesh off with it i'm going to put a um, picture up here and i'm going to hide myself just for a moment all right so you can see here the I, I don't know if you can see my mouse moving so forgive me if you can't i'm going to try to talk my way through this for those of you that are listening forgive me you'll have to go to to the website to the youtube page to 
to get a better idea of what we're looking at here. But you have Jesus tied to the whipping post here. Now, some people have him bent over like a stump so that his back is exposed in that way. But this, what you're seeing here, was a very common way to flog the victim. You can see on the left-hand portion of the picture, uh, that's the typical type of whip, except I, I would say that this whip comes a little short in that it doesn't have the nine tails. Right? That's generally what the Roman soldiers used was the cat of nine tails. So this one just has four different cords coming off of it. But you can see um, the leather throng. You can see the metal balls, the small bones, pieces of bone knotted into the end of it, uh, which had to have been incredibly, incredibly painful. Now, under the, in the law or under the law, it was prescribed that the Jews could only whip a man 30, well, up to 40 times. They couldn't go past 40. So what the Jews did is they would always stop at 39 hits with the whip, 39 lashes. Um, so some people have said that Jesus was, he got hit 39 times by this whip. But remember, he's not being whipped by, by Jews. He's being whipped by Romans. And uh, these are trained soldiers Known, they, they know how to do this very well. So to, to think that they stopped at 39, I think you're selling the Roman army a little bit short. I, I have a strong suspicion that they went far past that. All right, and it says in verse 26, when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So like I said, in between that, the scourging and the crucifixion, Jesus pre, or, uh, Pilate presents Jesus to the multitude one more time. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. All right, this common hall, let me show you the other name for it. It's also called a praetorium. Sorry, guys. There we go. Uh, yeah, in Mark 15, 16, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. So this is the same context uh, just in Mark's gospel. So the Praetorium, this is uh, another way of referring to the judgment hall or the common hall. This was usually like the headquarters for the leader of the, an army or leader of the government. So wherever his headquarters or his tent was. That was considered the praetorium. Uh, you can even go to Israel now and still see these, these things and these, uh, these places that Jesus visited and was taken to. I shouldn't say visited, but forced into. So verse 27, they gather the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Now, Bear in mind what's going on here. He has just been whipped. His, his flesh is hanging off of him. He is in pieces, blood running. They had put, after he got whipped, they put his clothes on. And now, uh, forgive me, after he got whipped, they put this on. In just a moment, they put the scarlet robe on. In just a moment, they're going to rip it off. And what's significant about this, when you put that garment on him, right, the, the blood, the open wound gets stuck to that garment. So by ripping this garment off, it is opening up the wounds again. This is mean on so many levels. So verse 28, they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Verse 29, and when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. Obviously, they don't believe he's the king of the Jews, but they put the scarlet robe on him because, right, scarlet was a kingly color. And now they, it says they plaited a crown of thorns. To plait is to braid, just like a, a lady braids her hair. So they, they braided this crown of thorns. They, I'm going to show you. I think you're all familiar with what the crown of thorns look like, but um, there you go. You can see the full picture of it there. Um, th this, I, I think, is a fair representation of what the crown of thorns might have looked like. It's hard to say precisely, but the length of these thorns, this is very, this is common to that area. And I have heard from some people that these thorns would even have, a, I don't know if you want to say poison, but something in the end of it to where when it was pressed into human flesh, 
it would induce swelling uh, more than just the typical prick of a of a thorn but these thorns were known to make a person uh, swell up and and therefore there be more pain all right uh, so verse number 29 they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying hail king of the jews now, you know it's ironic and sad at the same time one day those knees are going to bow again right one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These same knees that bowed in mocking and, and blasphemy, one day they're going to they're gonna bow in utter terror and fear of the one that they, they mocked here. In verse number 30, it says, And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Now, now think of this. They put the crown of thorns on him. Now they take the reed, and I don't think they took it gently, snatched it away from him, and they slam him on the head with it. They smote him on the head. That pushes the crown of thorns deep into his brow, penetrating. I mean, I would say, I think it would be fair to say down to the skull. I mean, this, this has got to be incredibly painful. What, uh, what he's experiencing here. Now, if the crown of thorns, if it has that, let's say, poison in the end of the thorns, it's causing his forehead to swell. My goodness, the pain is just getting worse and worse. It's getting tighter and tighter around his head. Now, I, I also think it's significant that he's wearing a crown of thorns. I think that's significant because in Genesis chapter 3, you might remember that God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. And he said, thorns also and thistles shall come forth out of the ground for you. Uh, that's a reminder of the curse. So I think I pointed this out when we went through Romans chapter 8. But when Jesus dies, he's not only dying so that he can fix the problem of mankind, but he's also this, this gives him the right to do away with the curse that's been put on nature. Right? Now, we studied this in Romans 8, that that curse wasn't nature's fault. It was all, it was all part of, of mankind's fall. But uh, we can see that connection to Jesus taking that curse away. In verse uh, number 31, it says, And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. So, you know, as I see this now, let me just take another look at it here. Um, in verse 28, they stripped him. So that means they whipped him, put his garment on, and then bring him into the, into the hall, rip his garment off, which is painful, put the scarlet one on, mock him, and then they took that robe off, hurts again, and then put his own raiment back on him. After that, they led him away to crucify him. Now, they, we don't have a long description of... of uh, Jesus' trek up the mountain to be crucified. We do have some details, as you're going to see here in verse 32, but not a lot. This is where I think it's really important that every individual takes time as they read through the Gospels to slow down when you get to these chapters. Take a few moments to let these things sink in. Try to put yourself there in the crowd and watch this. And there's a good verse for that in just a moment. Uh, my pastor, that the one that led me to Christ, me and me and Christina, he he would. I've I've never forgotten that he told me about this. Every day he would read in one of the Gospels about the story of Jesus dying. He he would read other things in his Bible, right? He would he'd read through his Bible uh, hundreds of times by the time I knew him. But every day he would make sure to read this story, every day just to keep it fresh in his heart and mind. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to do it every day, but it wouldn't hurt you to keep it fresh in your heart and mind. That's for sure. Verse 32, now listen, I'm not asking you to dwell, or I'm not suggesting that you dwell on the physical suffering behind it, right? What I am asking you to do is think about the love and compassion that it took to motivate him to go through this for you. Right? There is something profitable in, in remembering this. Verse 32, and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
Him they compelled to bear his cross. As far as we know, Simon was just another bystander in the crowd. Can you imagine how much his life changed that day? And as best we can tell, Simon and his, his boys, uh, you read it in Mark's gospel, Alexander and Rufus, they end up becoming disciples of Christ. Um, as far as we can see, they weren't before this, but uh, they certainly were after this. So uh, this is one of those times, again, that if you put the gospel side by side, it'll benefit you greatly. It looks as if Jesus begins his journey up Mount Calvary by carrying the cross alone. And we never read anywhere that he stumbles, right? But it is assumed that he got weak, right? Blood loss, he's tired, he was up all night praying. So many reasons, physically speaking, humanly speaking, that Jesus just gets worn out and can't make the journey. It is reasonable to think that he stumbled at some point during this journey. And that's when Simon is called in. So Jesus has the, the cross and then Simon comes in. Now, it depends on how you want to read this. I think both approaches are are appropriate. It could be that Jesus continued to carry the cross and that Simon picked up the back end of it and carried it after him. See, the way it's worded in Luke, Simon carried it after him. Now, the question is, is that a, is that a geographical reference, right? That Jesus is, is in front of him while Simon is in the rear carrying the cross? Do we mean after him in that sense? Or do we, are we talking chronology, right? Are, are we talking that Jesus carried it first and then he couldn't carry it any longer and now he's walking independently while Simon picks up the cross by himself and carries it? Either way, right? However you want to understand it, 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 it changes the story, but it doesn't change the truth of what's happening. And uh, however it's reported, th- these reports, none of it contradicts. It still makes sense that uh, Simon helped in some capacity. Now, let me give you a quick word or two about uh, the cross. Let me just get the... There, there are different ways to think of it. Some people say that Jesus, he carried the entire structure, right? The, the cross beam, let me use my arm, the cross beam, this section, and then the post that went in the ground, right? So there, I don't know how I can angle that better. You have the cross like that. So some people say the full cross, Jesus carried that up the mount. Um, boy, when you consider the weight of that, I highly doubt it. And it was typical in these days that when a prisoner was condemned to death by crucifixion, that they would carry their cross, but they would carry the cross beam, right? They would carry the part, the piece of wood that would turn the stake into a cross. So the cross beam by itself, right? This will be the part that Jesus' hands are going to be nailed to. That part by itself weighed anywhere from 34 to 57 kilograms. That's, uh, that's quite a bit, right? That's quite a bit. That's like carrying a, a small man, <laughs> I, I, if, if I understand correctly. That's quite a bit. Um, I don't, if you were to put the the stake that goes in the ground with that, you'd have to not double, but maybe triple that. I don't think that Jesus and his condition could have, barring some uh, uh, some sublime miracle, I don't think he could have carried that. In his physical condition, it's hard to believe that he even managed to pick up this cross beam at any point. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe that Jesus is carrying this cross beam and it just becomes too much for him after a certain point. Right, it uh, says in verse number 33, and when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull. Um, let me give you a little bit of background on Golgotha. Uh, Golgotha is a Hebrew word that means place of a skull. The Latin term for place of a skull is Calvary. Calvary. The word Calvary only shows up in Luke chapter 23. And a lot of the other English versions, they don't even have Calvary. They've, they replace it with a different word there. But Golgotha, Calvary, we're talking about the same place. So let me, you can see in the top left-hand corner, at least on my screen, this top left-hand corner, uh, you can, it's circled there. 
where it looks a bit like a skull. This is why a lot of people believe this is why this area was called the place of a skull. Now, some people have different ideas about that. They say that there were so many dead bodies that the skeletons, especially the skulls of the of the former victims could be seen at the foot of this mountain. There, so there are other theories as to how this place got the name place of a skull. Um, this, I think, it does somewhat represent or look like a, a, a skull there. If that picture doesn't do it, maybe you can see it. I, again, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but on the right-hand side of the screen, that same area that was circled, can you see where it looks like two holes for the eyes and then one for the nose on the extreme right of the screen? You'll see it just above that car that's parked there. Obviously, this is a more modern, modern picture. But then towards the right edge, just above that skull, that is where the cross would have been put into the ground. All right, so verse number... 34, and they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. All right In one of the other gospels, I think it's Mark, they gave him wine to drink. Vinegar, wine, it, it is the same substance, but it, the vinegar, when you're talking wine that is a vinegar, it's very, very bitter. And it's reserved for these type of situations. It was given to prisoners to prolong their life. Now, the Jews... They were told in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6, to, uh, I just saw that you can't see my mouse. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, in Proverbs 31, 6, the Jews were told that if a man is dying, you can give him strong drink to ease his pain. It was kind of like morphine, right, back in the day. Uh, so some believe that that's what's going on here and that Jesus is being given this, is tranquilizer the right word? I don't know if that's the right word, but... This, this pain reliever to help him endure what's about to happen. But again, remember, they are not Jews uh, that are crucifying him, physically holding him to the cross and nailing him to it. These are Romans. So as best I can tell, the Romans were known to give this wine uh, mixed with gall. In some of the Gospels, it says myrrh, right? Mixed with myrrh. They would give them this to prolong their life. It would actually invigorate the prisoner a little bit. And this was meant to uh, prolong the suffering and make it worse. So it was a very cruel thing to do, but they, they were known for their cruelty. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, if you, if you look at it from the Proverbs 31 uh, aspect, you say, well, Jesus rejected this morphine. He you can, you can think of it that he wants to experience the, all, all of the pain and suffering. He is not going to dilute that at all. But again, I don't think that we can look at this through that Jewish, that Jewish lens, not at this point. Um, I think he realizes that he has a mission to get to the cross and, and die. He knows what these, room, these Romans are trying to do. And I think that he doesn't drink it because he, he knows there's no need to make it worse than it is. Um, I find in that a very interesting lesson, right? You don't have to make more life, uh, you don't have to make life more difficult than it needs to be. But verse number 35, it says, and they crucified him. Now, similar to the phrase, and they scourged him. The Bible doesn't go into long details, you know, long drawn out details about what happened. But we know in just a moment there were at least four soldiers involved in this because his garments are parted to four different people. So this would, I would assume this is two on each arm, if you think of it that way. You might even put a couple extra soldiers or at least one more to hold his, his legs down as well. But you have Jesus, he's carried this crossbeam up the hill. I would say that the stake, is, his weight is laying on the ground. And they, they lay the crossbeam down on top of the, the stake. They fix that together. And then they put the prisoner on the crossbeam. They stretch his arms out and they would dislocate the arms so that the prisoner would not have as much strength to, you know, to try to get away from this. So they would stretch his arms out as long as they could, dislocate the, the joints, which actually fulfills prophecy in Proverbs. I'm sorry. In Psalm 22, it talks about how all of his joints would be, would be out. So that, that fulfilled prophecy there. But then 
they drove the nails through. Now, those of you, again, forgive me if you're only listening and you can't see this. Most people, they draw the picture with the hole in the palm. I don't think that's where the nail went. If that's where the nail went, then the nail would have, it could have slipped through this way. So I think that the nail went right about here, right where the wrist meets the hand, right about there. And it would have gone directly through that, that area, and then it would have sat nicely in between that bone there in, in your wrist, in your, your hand. They crucified him. Now the nails, let me give you just a quick insight on the nails that were typically used in this time. 13 to 18 centimeters long for one nail. And I think you guys in Afrikaans, you say a spiker, a spiker, I think is how you say it, spiker. Uh, so 13 to 18 centimeters long and one centimeter wide, approximately. Uh, that, I think, is much like a railroad spike, something to that nature, going through his hands and, and through his feet. And they crucified him. All right, in verse 35, they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, which you can kind of think of this as like throwing dice, right, just to see who gets it. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Now, in one of the other gospels, you get a little more detail in that it says that they were, uh, the garments were parted four ways to every, and every man got a piece. So there are at least four soldiers involved in that. Uh, the prophecy that's being fulfilled, this is Psalm 22, verse 18. I did not... Uh, let me put it into the chat section there. Yeah, Psalm 22, verse 18. That's the prophecy there. Now, the garment could be torn up into four pieces, but the vesture, that was one woven work. It was, it was all one piece. You tear it and it's useless. So that's why they, uh, the vesture stayed uh, by itself. They cast lots. This was like the special prize that somebody, the bonus prize that they could go home with. In verse 36, I've preached from this verse many, many times. Uh, it says there, and sitting down, they watched in there. I, I don't have time to preach it tonight, but you can, you can see the immediate, um, I want to say value, or let's say opportunity that you have to preach there. Because all of us, at some point or another, we need to go to the cross, sit down, and just watch what's going on. We need to take a long look at Jesus. We need to take a look at his mother, who's there. You find out in John 19 that she's there. Take a long look at his disciples because a couple of them, uh, John is, is there with Mary, right? John the disciple, the beloved of Jesus, he's there with, with, uh, with uh, Jesus' mother. Uh, take a look at the people, how they're treating him. See where you fit in. It's a tremendous opportunity to, to get some practical help from this passage. But for the sake of the lesson, let's continue. Verse 37, And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, this is one of those times where if you read all four Gospels, you get the full message. The, the full message over the cross was, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And not one Gospel gives you that full message. But if you get all four together, you find out that's what was written above him. In, in one of the other Gospels as well, it says that this was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Obviously, the three major languages of, of the time. Um, that tells me something, though. Very practical. This is more preaching than teaching. The Romans did that simply so that anybody in the audience, in the crowd, would know what this guy was guilty of. But... When I see that, I, I think of the various people groups that God's trying to reach. It's written in Hebrew. That's your Shemite. It's written in Greek. That's your Japhethite. It's written in Latin. That's your Hamite. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with those terms, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, those are the three sons of Noah. And from those three boys, you have, you have what... People usually refer to as the races. I don't agree with the idea, that term of a white race and a black race and, a, and a, I think they call it a mongoloid or a yellow race. I don't agree with that terminology. I think we're all part of the human race. But you can at least break it down into those three people groups if you'd like to. But 
the major language for those people groups is represented on the cross. God wants Jesus to be known by everybody in the world, right? The gospel is the power of God to everyone that believeth, everyone. Uh, Verse 38, then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. So when we read in Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. This is fulfilling that prophecy. Verse 39, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Wagging. We think of when I use the word wagging, there's two ways I use it. When a dog wags its tail, like that, and when you wag your finger at somebody like this, just back and forth, back. So these people are just standing there wagging their heads back and forth. Ah, utter disgust. Let me show you, though, a prophecy that they fulfilled just in doing that, in that gesture of wagging their head. Psalm 109, verse 25, uh, which I strongly recommend that later on, when you have time, read the entire psalm. It is incredibly messianic. There's a lot about the Messiah in this. But verse 25 says, I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. They shaked their heads back and forth. That's wagging their heads. So here's David writing this. I believe this, yeah, this is David. Um, He's writing this a thousand years before it happens. But he knows the details down to people shaking their heads. And what's beautiful about these kind of Psalms is that you get an inside look into what's going on in Jesus's mind while the people are doing that. So I just look at the verses around. I don't, forgive me, I don't mean to get windy on this part, but man, there's too much to this. Verse 24, my knees are weak through fasting and my flesh faileth of fatness. We can, Jesus was probably weak from not having eaten that entire, uh, you know, through the evening and now into morning. I became a reproach. And then verse 26, help me, O Lord, my God. Oh, save me according to thy mercy that they may know that this is thy hand and so forth. When, when you begin to read deeper into this, you see what's going on in Jesus' heart and mind. All right, let me uh, take you back to Matthew 27. We'll finish up in, uh, in just a minute or two. Did we get verse 39? Yeah, we did. All right, verse 40. And saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. So re- remember that. This was the accusation that was brought against Jesus privately in Caiaphas' house the night before, or let's say a few hours before this. But then those same accusations had to have been made publicly because now everybody is is crying these same things out. Uh, Notice at the end of verse 40, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Doesn't that sound like Matthew 4 when Jesus is fasting? And the devil comes to him after the 40 days and says, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. If thou be the Son of God, cast yourself down. Let the angels pick you up. And here we, I I think this is the devil manifesting through these people. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, what's the devil trying to get him to do? At the very least, what are the people trying to get him to do? Uh, act like a human, right? If you have power to make your life more comfortable, make it more comfortable. (laughs) But Jesus has already told us back in Matthew 16, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest the things of man, not the things that be of God. Verse uh, 41, rather. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself he cannot save. So what kind of savior is this? He can't even save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Well, here's the thing about a skeptic, about a cynic. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what Jesus does, right? He has given them so much proof and yet they say, well, just do this one thing, then we'll believe. If he had done it, their hearts were so hard. They would have said, ah, you did that through the power of Beelzebub. (laughs) They would have found another reason not to like him. And Jesus is well aware of it. There are some people, guys, no matter how much you talk to them, they just don't want to believe something. 
And all you can do in those cases is you just keep on being obedient to God and let the Lord deal with their heart. And by God's grace, and I mean that, over time, that heart can be, that heart can be softened. Uh, verse 43, trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. Real slap in the face. For he said, I am the Son of God. So they know uh, plainly what he, what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be. And verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now it must be said that a, the death by, a death by crucifixion, you don't die from generally from blood loss. I mean, that, that probably did happen on some occasions, but it wasn't the loss of blood, but it was, a, a, I think the word is asphyxiation. Asphyxiation? How do you say that? None of you can help me because you can only type it in. Asphyxiation? Yeah, that sounds right. Asphyxiation. Uh, where you can't breathe anymore. What happens is the weight of your body, you have to push up on the nails to breathe in. And then when, if I understand it correctly, and I'm not a doctor, so I, I struggle to explain it perfectly, but you, the real pain is not so much with lifting up and taking a breath in, but then trying to exhale. Because once you get that breath in, you, you slump back down, but you, that breath gets trapped and the carbon dioxide builds up in your body. You can't exhale properly. And that's what eventually kills the person is that buildup of carbon dioxide in the body, which again, I, I'm not a medical doctor, so you'd probably do better to, to go to a website or some book that explains that in, in better medical terms. But whatever the case, it's a horrible death that they die. Very slow death. Very slow death. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And we're going to stop there for the evening. But let me just mention that for the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross, Jesus was on the cross for six hours altogether. For the first three hours, both thieves, one on the right hand, one on the left, were against Jesus. But then halfway through, uh, Luke chapter 23 gives us the story of one of those thieves repenting. So we call him the penitent thief. Uh, you can see just a hint of this in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. So Jesus went to the cross on the, at the third hour. And then from the sixth to ninth hour, there was, so for three hours, there was darkness. For the first three hours, there wasn't. The, the sun was coming up. And then, so Jesus went to the cross at 9 a.m., and then at 12 noon, everything goes dark. And from 12 noon until 3, uh, there's this darkness over the land. But those last three hours, one of the thieves had the best three hours of his life hanging there next to Christ. Okay, that's where we're going to stop for this evening. Uh, Lord willing, we will finish the chapter tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock. So I hope you guys are with us then. If you have any questions, please feel, feel free to slip them in. To the comments now, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and close us for the evening. Um, or if you'd rather contact me personally, if you have a question, you feel more comfortable to ask it that way. Please feel free. I'm more than happy to help if I can. All right, Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to take a look at what your Son did for us. And uh, Lord, I pray to help all of us to take a long look at it, more than just uh, learning what the verses say historically and what happened, but what it, what it means to us personally. Lord, let, let these truths sink deep, deep in our hearts and affect the way we live. Lord, might we see your love and compassion poured, for, poured out there on that cross for us. Might it always be special to us. Lord, thank you for loving us that much to endure this on our behalf. I pray that you'd please bring us back tomorrow night hungry, ready to learn more from you. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask you and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Christoph, you're very welcome. You guys have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, you'll see me tomorrow.